Good evening, everyone. Let me, uh, let me introduce us, uh, our evening together, just with a word of prayer, and then um, I'll introduce what we'll do tonight and for the next, well, for four, four weeks, but not the next four weeks. I'll explain. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather here tonight, especially as your people. We pray that you would be present in our midst, and we pray that you would speak your word to us. And may your spirit help us in, in all things, in our thoughts, in our feelings, and in our acting. I pray, Lord, that you, your word would shine through, and Lord, that your plans would remain. Help us as we discuss to love one another well, and thereby love you well. We devote our discussion to you this evening, and we pray that Jesus would get glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So um, before I introduce this series, let me, um, let me ask an introductory question. And the question is, when you hear the term refugee, what is the first word or phrase, maximum of five words, so the first word or up to five words that comes to your mind? Anyone willing to share what first comes to mind? Escape. Escape. John, I saw your hand. Escape, trouble. Escape, Displaced people. Displaced Immigrant. Okay. Person escaping from trouble, you're under the five word limit. <laughs> David? Have nothing. Sherry? Needy. Okay. Susie? Needing a home. Mike? Marginalized, Chris, downtrodden, uh, Joanne, orphaned from another country, also under the limit. That's good. <laughs> Tim, journeyman, uh, Mary, persecuted. Okay. Others, Teresa, separation. Pat, needing shelter. Brent, illegal. All right. Who hasn't said something? I think that's everybody. That's why I called it. Oh, right here. Anything? Escaping genocide. Okay, good. A related question. What is the first emotion you feel? Hopeless? Sad? Fear? Compassion? Overwhelmed? Tearing up your heart? Lost? Yeah. A lot of people feel angry, too. So thank you for, for sharing. What this series is, is built upon is this book. A lot of what I'm sharing with you in this series is not uh, something I came up with. I am not an expert in this area. Uh, so I rely upon people who are experts in this area. Um, you will not need this book in this series. However, if you'd like to go deeper, I highly recommend it. Um, this is also available on audiobook, which is how I consumed it, um, and it's a, it's, a good, it's a really good read all around. What we're going to do in four parts, in four weeks, is explore the variety, and there's a huge variety of issues surrounding the current international refugee crisis. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say on the topic, if anything. Hint, it does, it does say something. Um, <laughs> And, and third, and I hope this is probably, um, we may not get to it as much tonight, but in future weeks there will be more time, and that is a, a meaningful environment for discussion um, and listening, all right? In our third week, the third part, we will actually have a practical training on the refugee experience, and I'll explain uh, why in just a moment. We're not going to be going through this book chronologically if you've read it or are trying to read it. Um, as we go along, it, it won't make sense. It'll be a little bit back and forth. What I've tried to do is organize uh, this series thematically. They are, are doing kind of like a, a back and forth stream throughout this whole book, touching on a variety of different things. Let me, um, let me give you how this uh, series will be laid out. Four parts. The first part is tonight, and that's the introduction to the refugee crisis. What is it? What's it about? What are we even talking about when we say refugee and refugee crisis? The second part is I'm in calling Seeking Understanding. 
um, not just understanding of the refugee situation, but also understanding of what the Bible has to say about the refugee situation. Part three, we're having a guest speaker, Mary Cake. Mary Cake is a member at Christchurch Anglican uh, in Central Phoenix. She is also uh, the director of Phoenix Refugee Connections. Mary's going to come, and this is where that practical training on the refugee experience is going to come in. And Mary's going to bring with her one of her friends who is a refugee. And uh, she's going to be sharing about her experience. The last part is called Seeking Compassion. And really it's, what do we do? Not just how do we feel, but what do we do? What are we called to do, if anything? So today, tonight, uh, with our time, we're going to do an introduction to the refugee crisis. And we'll go as deep as we can in the time allotted. The very first thing we're going to do, this is one of the most important things that I think we can do, um, and that is to define terms. What do we mean when we say fill in the blank? So we're going to define terms. We're going we're to look at migrant, immigrant, displaced people, refugee, and asylum seeker. There are other terms, but a lot of times these are used inter interchangeably, or people say it and they don't really know what it means or even what they mean by saying it. So let's define terms and, and you can't have a meaningful discussion without using the same uh, language. If you're using a word and I interpret it differently than you mean it, we're bound to have a miscommunication, perhaps a disagreement and maybe even an argument. So let's get on the same page with our terminology. These, um, these terms, if you're wondering, uh, they come from the International Rescue Committee these are, as I've tried to compile the best definitions, these are the ones that I feel are the most consistently used. The first term is migrant. This is a really, really general term. It's someone who is moving from one place to another place, whether within his or her own country or across borders. And the reason they're doing that is because they're looking for better opportunities, whether economic uh, or educational or some other region. For example, a Nigerian who migrates to ASU in order to study, or a Mexican who migrates to Yuma seasonally to pick lettuce. These are migrants, and this, is, this, this term catches a lot of different kinds of people. What about the term immigrant? What is an immigrant? An immigrant is someone who makes a conscious decision to leave his or her home and move to a foreign country with the intention of settling their permanently. So an immigrant is not uh, the same as a migrant, although an immigrant is a migrant. An immigrant is looking for permanent residence in a different country. Now there are different kinds of immigrants. There are legal immigrants. Legal immigrants are immigrants who submit to the vetting process of the government in the new country in order that they might become a lawful resident or even eventually a naturalized citizen. For example, a Korean who is granted a green card by the U.S. government and may eventually become a naturalized U.S. citizen. We know very well that there are more than just legal immigrants. There are also illegal immigrants. Illegal Im immigrants do not go through the governmental immigration processes for a variety of reasons and instead seek to reside permanently in a new country without legal residence. For example, a Venezuelan who travels through Central America and crosses into the U.S without permission. Illegal immigrant. This series is not about illegal immigration. Some of you may have come here thinking that it might be. It's not. It's specifically about refugees. However, uh, what I think is that at the end of this series, you'll have better tools um, and thoughts to consider how to deal with the issue of illegal immigration. The next term is displaced people. These are people who are forced to leave their homes due to persecution, to conflicts, or, or violence, or human rights violation. Um, some displaced people are actually displaced within their own country. And these people are called internally displaced people. For example, in Syria, there are 6.2 million internally displaced people they have fled their homes, they've gone to other cities in Syria in order to find safety from the Civil War. They're displaced people, but they're internally displaced. Refugee. 
What is a refugee? A refugee is a displaced person, someone forced out, someone who cannot return home or is afraid to do so because of war or famine or violence based upon race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or belonging to some social group. Hence, they are seeking refuge somewhere else. Refugees apply for legal refugee status in a new country while they are displaced from their country and reside in another country. In order to be recognized as a refugee, an official entity, whether it's a national government, like the United States government, or the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, must determine that that person meets the international legal grounds uh, of, of being a refugee. For example, um, there's a Congolese pastor I met in Central Phoenix at Christchurch Anglican just a couple of months ago. Um, he's from Congo, but he's actually Tutsi, which is a tribe in Rwanda. Uh, with the fighting going on in the Congo, which has been more or less nonstop. Um, he and his family, his wife and his four children, they fled that violence to Rwanda. So they were refugees in Rwanda. And in Rwanda, he went to seminary. He was ordained as a pastor in the Anglican Church of Rwanda. And then one day, because he and his family had applied for refugee status uh, in the United States, was granted it. And I think to somewhat, um, they had been in Rwanda for many years. We'll talk about how long the refugee process can take. So his family was very well settled in Rwanda, enough to study and become a priest. And the United States government said, we're bringing you to Phoenix. Bottom plane tickets. He's here in Phoenix, um, still sorting out what his life is going to look like. Congo to Rwanda, and then eventually here in the United States to Phoenix. Refugees do not enter the destination country until they have legal permission to do so. They can't. They don't. And that can often take months or years. Refugees also may decide to return to their home country when the conditions are safe for them to return. In part two, we're actually going to go um, into great detail about the process for refugee resettlement. Um, but suffice it to say today, the approval process can take months or years because of how much vetting is done. In-depth security background checks and talking to everybody you know and all of this stuff that happens and it goes on and on and on and on. Finally, um, an asylum seeker. We've heard about this a lot in the news recently, especially at our southern border, not too far from here. An asylum seeker is someone who migrates and crosses a border without having received prior legal permission to enter the destination country, and then applies for protection and support by, from that nation. There are um, people coming in caravans from Honduras. You probably heard that several months ago. A caravan heading up through Central America and wanting to, to get entry into the United States and file for asylum status. Let's talk about what that, what that really means. Asylum seekers are people seeking international protection from dangers in their own home country, but whose claim to that protection has not yet been approved legally. Asylum seekers can apply for a couple different things. They can apply for refugee status. So they may have, they may have not been granted refugee status, and in their asylum process, they apply for refugee status. They can also apply for simply asylum and become an asylee. And let me talk about uh, what that means. Um, these people may be granted refugee status, uh, asylee status, or nothing at all. Um, refugee status is like what we talked about. They become a recognized legal refugee by the United States or by the UNHCR. Or if they don't actually meet the qualifications for a refugee, um, they might be applying for asylum for some reason. I'm going to talk about uh, a friend of mine who actually is an asylee here in this country. They may also just be not granted anything. And if they're in the country in a, in a facility and that they've applied for asylum, they might just be deported. Or if they're on the other side of our border in a facility waiting for their asylum case to be um, processed, they just won't be allowed entrance into the country. Uh, my friend Edric, uh, I met him in our first month here in uh, Phoenix. We were living in an apartment um, in Chandler, and I took my family to the pool, and there was this 
uh, man and his son who was Cohen's age. And um, I knew he was foreign. I didn't know where. But I guessed from Turkey, just depending on uh, the language he was speaking. I knew it wasn't Arabic, um, but he looked Middle Eastern. And turns out he was from Turkey. He introduced himself. Um, and so started this friendship. Um, our families were getting together. Uh, he and his family, uh, devout Muslims. One of the most virtuous people I've met who is not a Christian, my friend Edric. And Edric um, left Turkey probably 10 years ago to go with uh, an organization, a nonprofit organization that is headquartered in Turkey um, and sends educators out around the world. And so he actually moved with his wife to Mongolia um, to teach. Um, he has a PhD in mathematics. He was teaching mathematics in Mongolia as a way of developing um, the society in Mongolia. Well, um, when President Erdogan of Turkey was elected, um, who has more or less uh, become a dictator, um, Erdogan is very anti this nonprofit. And so he's made everyone in that nonprofit a public enemy. And those who reside in Turkey, he's jailed, including women and children. And those who are outside of the country and belong to that organization, he is requiring they come home. And the way he's requiring they come home is by denying um, the renewal of visas and passports. So Edric's passport was, was um, by the government in Turkey, was being denied. The renewal was being denied, which means he could not get into any other country, which means he couldn't stay in Mongolia. And he knew that if he went home, he would either be killed and it wouldn't be talked about, or he'd be put in prison, which is where thousands, literally thousands of people like that are. And Edric applied to the United States for asylum status as asylees. He didn't meet the criteria of refugees uh, because uh, Turkey wasn't war-torn. There wasn't famine. Um, he wasn't uh, necessarily being forced out. He knew that he probably wouldn't get refugee status, and so he applied for asylum. Um, there are famous Americans in uh, asylum in other countries. Um, Edward Snowden, I think, qualifies as an as asylee, right? Um, so you can be granted asylum for lots of different reasons. And Edric and his family were granted asylum here, safety, from what could be death or certain imprisonment. The thing about asylum status is that it's temporary, and he has a three-year, which is now down to, two, now to, one, to one year. It was three years when he started. Now it's down to one year, a ticking clock. Um, and he can, he can apply for renewal, but if it's not granted, he has to go back to Turkey and he fears for what will happen. Um, asylum seekers is a really complex thing because they, they don't really fit neatly into a category. People can seek asylum for any number of reasons. They can do it legally or they can, um, they can even do it in ways that aren't lawful. So this is a really difficult category to talk about without getting really, really nuanced. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about asylum seekers. We're not going to be talking a lot about what's going on um, in, at the southern border in Nogales and El Paso and all these places where people are applying for asylum. But what, what I wanted to explain to you is that they have not yet been granted either asylee status or refugee status or been denied. Their cases are being uh, processed right now. What is this series really about? What is it about? I want to just talk about two things. First of all, it's really about refugees as displaced people. So it, it is about displaced people, but it's really about refugees. We're going to talk deeply and as meaningfully as we can about the refugee plight, um, but we really won't be spending uh, much time on anything else, whether it's illegal immigration or asylum seekers or all of the related things. So we're really going to dive deep and hone in on this refugee crisis. Um, yet because of the things that we will discuss, I do, as I've said, think that as you leave this series, you'll have better tools for thinking about these other categories of displaced people or immigrants. Uh, second of all, this series is about, it's about theology. This isn't a political series. It's a theological series. But all theology has political implications. It has implications for, for our lives. It has to. It must. How many of you attended the Gospel and Politics series a year ago? Show of hands. Okay. Uh, most of you didn't. I would, I would highly recommend that you go to the website livingfaithanglican.org slash the-gathering. You can also find it in the Ministries tab, the Gathering. And there on the Gathering page are all of the past 
series we've done at the gathering. There are the recordings as well as the slides. So you can, you can literally listen and walk through the slides, or you can just look at the slides. I highly recommend it. Um, there's so much there. We, did, we took three weeks on it, and we could have taken a lot more. But I can't go into all of that tonight, obviously. But there are some things that I want to import from that discussion into this discussion tonight because the refugee question really in our society is a political question. But I'm saying here in the church, it's not a political question, it's a theological question. What do we do theologically and then politically? One of the things we did in that gospel and politics series is to set ground rules. Anytime we as a family of believers begin to talk about things that are controversial in society, we, we might run into controversy ourselves. And so it's important that we have grace with one another. And let me just talk about uh, what I'm setting as ground rules for our discussion, okay? First of all, we listen. We commit ourselves to listening to what's being said and not making assumptions. And when someone else is sharing, please listen, even if you disagree with their perspective. Be humble. I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. Even the experts don't have all the answers. This is highly complicated stuff. And we're talking about issues of interpretation when it comes to the scriptures. So it's nuanced. We really need to be humble and teachable when we approach a topic like this. Be teachable. That's the third. Stole my thunder. Fourth, disagreement is okay. We don't have to leave here all thinking the same thing. And in fact, if we, if we did, it might be more cultish than um, church, okay? Disagreement is okay. For, uh, fifthly, be in fellowship. That's what we're about. We're about being in fellowship. There are reasons to break fellowship, but what we're talking about tonight is not one of them. Finally, keep Christ at the center. May Jesus get glory in whatever we do, both in our conduct here and also in the conclusions that we come to. A second thing I wanted to import from the gospel and politics series were, were a few of the key concepts uh, that we used for exegeting political issues, for interpreting and making sense of political issues. Uh, I want to just give a few of those this evening, and I've already hinted at one. Theology must shape our politics and not the other way around. The question I'm most interested in in this series is, how should we as followers of Jesus respond to the refugee crisis? Only secondly, how should we as Americans respond to the refugee crisis? I am much more interested in that first question because our first identity as human beings who are saved by Jesus Christ is that we are part of God's kingdom, and that is our politic, God's kingdom. Yet, as it always does, the conclusions we come to theologically will have something to say to our political opinions and how we as Americans function in our democracy. Uh, but that's the right direction, to head from theology to politics and not the other way around. Uh, the second concept is the difference between legality and morality. What I suggested in that, in that series is that Christians need to be most concerned with morality first and legality second. Sometimes what is legal is immoral. For example, divorce is legal. But some people are, they will divorce for, for no reason at all or they will be kind of habitual divorcees, right? And I'm not saying that there's not, there's not biblical grounds for divorce. I am saying that oftentimes in our society, divorce is not warranted and is not biblical, and yet it's still legal, right? Secondly, what is illegal is not always immoral, right? Going the speed limit, that's a law. So speeding is illegal. Is it immoral? Unless we're going to make the argument that it, it goes against the rule of law, we really don't have much else to stand on. Is it really immoral? So the question is, we need to look at our laws and find out what are those laws, um, what are the values that those laws are holding up? Are they things that are moral? Are they things that are immoral? Do we need a law to guard that piece of morality or not? So I think those are questions we need to ask. The final concept is the difference between values and policies. The difference between values and policies. Values are these things that we uh, hold dear, the things that we call good. Gospel values are these things that God calls good. Uh, what God loves and what God cherishes in the world. Policies are how we go about ensuring those values. 
For example, if our, if our value is freedom, um, it's a really important policy for us to have free and fair elections. Make sense? Our value is freedom, and the way we apply that freedom or seek that freedom in our society has lots of different ramifications, one of which may be free and fair elections. Now, as Christians, I think that we need to be on the same page about our values. We're reading the same Bible. We believe the same gospel. And so the things that God calls good and beautiful and lovely and true, those are our gospel values. We shouldn't have a lot of disagreement about them. Where we can disagree, and, and really secondarily, is upon the way we seek to implement those values in society. We may come to different conclusions, for example, about how it's best to preserve the sanctity of life when it comes to abortion. We may disagree, but if we're not on the same page about the sanctity of life for fetuses, we're, we're, that's a problem. Does that make sense? So our values are really what matter, and we need to have, I think, meaningful conversations about how best to pursue those values by policies in our national sphere. So I'm not going to go any deeper into that rabbit trail, but these are going to be valuable concepts as we move along in the series. So that's what this series is about. Why are we talking about refugees at all? Two reasons. First of all, you can't really turn on the TV without seeing something about this. And it may be explicit or it may be implicit. It might be a, a direct situation where refugees are involved or something which relates to their involvement. Uh, the book Seeking Refuge is written by three authors. One of them is Stephen Bauman. He is the president of World Relief, which is um, a, a nonprofit focused upon <coughs> refugees and ministry to refugees. The second author is Matthew Sorens, who also works for World Relief. He is the director of U.S. Church Mobilization. And the third author is um, a guy named Dr. Isam Smear. He is actually a, a former immigrant, and he's a licensed counselor in trauma. And his area of specialization is dealing with the trauma that refugees experience. These three authors call the current displacement of people in the last decade an unprecedented global crisis. They call it an unprecedented global crisis, meaning there's not anything that's been seen like it before, and it's global in scale. In 2015, there was a photo that got the attention of the whole world. Syria's civil war had been going on for five years. Millions were and still are, as we've talked about, displaced. Many Syrians fled on land and by boat to Turkey and Europe to find safety from the horrors going on in the civil war, especially from Bashar al-Assad's regime. And people all around the world knew it was happening, but it's different when you see it. And I'm going to show you that photo again tonight, and it's disturbing, but we need to see it because we need to remember that these are people. This is a photo of a three-year-old boy, Syrian, named Alan Kurdi, who made a failed attempt at crossing the Mediterranean to get into Turkey to find safety. My son was roughly the same age at the time this happened. These are people, and they're not just men, they're women, and they're children. We need to remember that it's people. And yet, as tragic as the, the Syrian refugee crisis is, that is not the only place in the world where this stuff is happening. It really is a global thing. It's Syria, it's Afghanistan, it's Somalia, it's Congo, it's Sudan, it's Myanmar, it's Bangladesh, it's the Central African Republic, it's Iraq, Eritrea, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Venezuela, etc., etc., etc. It's unprecedented. According to the UNHCR, in 2019, there are 70.8 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. 41 million of them are internally displaced, like the, the Syrians I talked about earlier. 25 of them legally qualify under international uh, terms as a refugee. 26 million of those 70.8 million, 3.5 of them are seeking asylum. That is astounding. 
Where are all of these refugees? Well, you might be surprised that most of them are not in Western countries. The vast majority of them are not. If they have left their country, if they're not internally displaced, where they have gone is to the neighboring countries, which are also third world and developing. Turkey, Pakistan, Lebanon, Iran, Jordan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Chad, Yemen, South Sudan, Uganda, Sudan, and other. The people fleeing from, from war and famine and whatever in these places are going here, not Europe and not the United States. Only 1%, 1% of the refugees in the world get the chance to resettle in a developed country. 1%. That's, that's something that I think we need to hear as Westerners. Rwanda shares a border with Congo, and as I talked about, um, uh, Pastor Honore, who's here in Phoenix with his family, he fled from Congo into Rwanda, found safety, applied for refugee status in the United States, and was eventually granted it many years later. I think it's about 10 years. Well, I showed you this on the, on the Taba uh, presentation um, last month. Kigemi Diocese is here. The diocesan office and cathedral, their hospital uh, and a school. This is the refugee camp that Kagemi Diocese has given the land to the government for. They have built a school here which has 9,000 refugee teenagers there. And in total, this whole camp has 20,000 Congolese. 20,000. I'm going to talk about it in just a moment, but, but um, in, in recent news, that, that's actually more than our cap in refugees for the next fiscal year. Kigemi Diocese is not really capable of caring for this burden, and yet that's what's happening. Developing countries next door are, for whatever reason, being hospitable. I have no idea why. I asked Bishop Asiel that. I said, how are you being hospitable to these, this many people when you have so little yourself? And how could you, with your cathedral church right here, Look across the street every day at 20,000 people living in poverty. Isn't that hard? Like, wouldn't you want to escape that? Wouldn't you want, isn't it hard to get people to come to church when they're forced with, you know, forced to face the realities of their own luxuries every Sunday? And he said, just very simply, this is what we do. This is what we do. Who else are we? This is what we do. There are two things that really make this crisis such a, a big deal right now. Um, and the first is that the total number of displaced peoples worldwide, which includes refugees, has been growing dramatically in recent decades. So you think about, uh, let's start here in, in 1980, some civil wars. You've got uh, the, the, the millions of people here. All right, so that's, I don't know, four million, three or four million. It goes, goes up into the 90s with the Rwandan genocide, just up, up above 20 million total worldwide, and then it goes down just a little bit, and then goodness sakes, right? In the last 10 years, just skyrocketing, more than 40 million, up to now 70.8 million in 2019. So it's unprecedented in, its, in the amount. The second thing that makes this so dramatic of a crisis is that Western countries are not increasing their caps, but decreasing their caps. Um, the United States, historically, in terms of Western countries, has been the most empathetic and compassionate nation by far. In 1982, the United States resettled 97,000 um, refugees compared to the 41,000 resettled by all other countries. That's amazing. This has actually been a part of our, a critical part of our American identity. Since 1980, of the 4 million refugees who have been permanently resettled worldwide, because remember, only 1% get resettled in a developed country. Of the 4 million who were permanently resettled, not those still awaiting resettlement, the U.S. took in 3 million of them. Of the 4, we took in 3. Now listen to the authors of Seeking Refuge. They write, while broader immigration issues like border security and how to respond to those in the country unlawfully, illegal immigrants, have long been controversial, refugees 
who all enter the United States with full legal status and who by definition have fled persecution and thus almost always have compelling stories have not been particularly controversial until recently. In recent years, the United States has put a cap on refugees and cut it down every year for the last three years. In 2017, the cap was 110,000. 97 were actually, 97,000 were actually resettled here, but the cap was 110,000. In the last three years, look at that plummet. There's recent news here, and this is what I was referring to. It was last Thursday, the White House made ch two changes to the, to the United States Refugee Resettlement Program. The new maximum for the next fiscal year is 18,000. So three years ago, it was 110,000, and now it's 18,000 for the next year. Again, that's less than actually live next door to Kagami Cathedral. Uh, the second thing that the White House did last Thursday was to um, give an executive order that's going to require state and local governments to give written consent before any refugees can be settled in those communities, the cities, or those states. And because it's very, very, because this has never happened before, because there's no process set in place, the assumption is those cities and states will not know how to make the, the um, approval, and therefore no refugees will need to be resettled. So the cap has been dropped, but there's also additional obstacles being put in place that limit refugees from actually being settled in, in cities and states across the country. I even though 18,000 is dramatically low, who knows how many will actually be able to be settled? Um, so maybe 5,000, I don't you know, who knows? So the cap's low, but also um, the actual resettle will be much lower than the actual cap. But also the second issue with this is when, when refugees are resettled, that the government works really hard to settle them near their families so that they have the community that we all long for, so that they can actually get on their own two feet. And literally, that benefits the government because the government doesn't have to offer services because their family can offer services, right? Well, if, if Phoenix um, allows some refugees, and we do, but um, the city decides we're not gonna give this written consent, no one will be allowed to be resettled in Phoenix, so families will no longer be able to be resettled together. Make sense? Um, the refugee crisis is getting worse, and nations such as ours are cutting back the actual number of refugees being allowed in. That's why this is a crisis. That's why we're spending four weeks on it and not something else. Um, the second reason we're talking about this is because the Bible has a lot to say. I mean, you, I think you'll probably be surprised how much the Bible has to say. Now, in part two, we're going to be looking uh, deeper into what the Bible does have to say. But for now, I want to just give the author's perspective. They're pretty honest about where they're coming from. We believe that the church, in its many local incarnations throughout the world, must be at the center of the response to the global refugee crisis. Now, at this point um, in this conversation, some of you may agree with that, and some of you may disagree with that. When we finish this series, some of you may agree with that and some of you may disagree with that. On some level, I'm okay with it. But this is the perspective that we have moving forward. We're going to talk about why that is. Many people, including Christians, are against assisting in this crisis. There are many genuine concerns about refugee resettlement. Legitimate, genuine fears and concerns. And so the last thing we're going to do tonight is actually talk about um, probably the four most common concerns over refugee resettlement. Before we, we get into those four, I wanted to just see if anybody here, again, being brave and courageous, has a concern about refugee resettlement. I think it's important that we voice it. My concern is um, the vetting process of them coming in. It just takes one to come in and um, go off and kill whoever, you know, we think that he's let in because of whatever reason. In reality, he's here to hurt whoever, and so a poor vetting process. Absolutely. That's a really common concern. A concern could be our resources. Do we have enough resources to support um, and if they are going to be permanently residing here, do we have enough jobs so that they can 
someday support themselves and also be a contributing citizen. Great, that's a really, really common concern. I think there's potential health issues because they're coming from areas uh, with diseases that are not in this country and they can be brought to this country. And so how do we protect against that? Any others? I'll take one more. In this, I'm going to share something just that um, one of the things we deal with teaching English to refugees is the family unit tends to split because the kids go to school here and they learn English and the parents don't and we're trying to teach the parents and grandparents English so sometimes actually when they come in the family uh, suffers and they need more support than just food and a place to stay so there's a lot of things that go on with that and we're not really built so so well with that. Thank you guys for sharing. I'm going to talk about what I think are probably the four most common concerns about resettling refugees. Um, the first is, is an economic concern. Aren't they just a drain? We have poor people ourselves. We have people who are unemployed. We have people who are hungry. Why should we bring in more of them? There are a couple problems, I think, with this question. The first is that I think it assumes that refugees are a net cost to the economy of the receiving country. I think that's actually an assumption that's made, and there's not a lot of research to support it. The general consensus on this issue is that immigration and refugees are no exception to that generally has a net positive impact on the economy of the receiving country, and there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, Refugees are consumers. They have to buy things, right? So just in terms of, of purchasing power, they're bringing in their own purchasing power. They're paying rent, mortgage, they're buying food and, and cell phones and laundry detergent and all the things like the rest of us. And that purchasing power leads to profits for American businesses and et cetera. The second thing is that refugees tend to work like immigrants in fields that complement the jobs that Americans want. Oftentimes, there, there are jobs that Americans will not fill that we have to either bring in migrants seasonally or rely upon our immigrant and refugee labor. So um, immigrants and refugees don't so much take jobs as they do the jobs that Americans don't actually want. So we can't criticize them for having a job, particularly if it's a job that we ourselves wouldn't want to do. Historically, throughout our, our, our nation's history, that's exactly the role that immigrants have played. They, they're kind of at the bottom. But it's an important part of our society. Uh, the third reason is that refugees actually repay to the government the resettlement costs. When uh, Reverend Honoré and his family were flown from Rwanda to Phoenix, those six plane tickets had to be repaid within three months to the government. So there's actually not a drain upon the United States government in resettling refugees. Uh, they're not actually given money that they're not expected to repay. Make sense? The, the fourth thing is that economists are also finding that immigrants positively impact the well-being of the nation because, particularly in Western countries where the birth rate is low, refugees are paying taxes which are helping support the people in that country, when, when we're aging as a society, we need more people uh, of age to work and pay for the Medicare and Social Security of our elderly. That's an important piece of this. The fifth thing is uh, that, generally speaking, immigrants and refugees actually present an economic opportunity for the governments that receive them. I don't have statistics on this, but I was looking at this. The number of immigrant-started and refugee-started businesses is astounding when you look at the kind of per capita, the population of immigrants and refugees in those countries and how many businesses are started. I mean, it's probably not surprising. You can't pass a strip mall here uh, without seeing um, a restaurant uh, or a grocery or something like that that was started by either an immigrant or a refugee who has legal status to be here and to start a business. And that's, that's good for our economy. So this idea that refugees are a drain on the economy is pretty much unfounded. 
It's not to say that there aren't instances where that's the case. It's just in general, it's not really true. The second problem, I think, with this approach or this question, if it keeps us from resettling refugees, is because it treats the economy as the most important value. Using um, a, a Christian research poll in their book, the, the authors, they say this. What's the most important voting issue to evangelical Christians? It's not refugee or immigration policy, nor is it abortion, marriage, or religious liberty. It's not a concern for the poor, nor is it foreign policy. Like most Americans, it's the economy. It's the economy. It really can't be that way with us. If you really want to support that stance, that value, biblically, you don't have a lot to stand on. Even if, even if refugee resettlement didn't really present an economic opportunity for us as a nation, which I think it does, we as Christians still have to respond to it in a different way. We, we don't get to do a cost-benefit analysis when it comes to um, caring for our neighbors. That's not something that we should be doing ahead of time. The second uh, common objection is this rule of law objection. And that is, don't you understand illegal? What part of this word illegal do you not understand? Now, Paul makes it really clear in the book of Romans, chapter 13, that we are called to respect the rule of law. This is what he says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's harsh. Right? So we, we are for the rule of law. There are a couple of problems with, with this objection when it comes to refugee resettlement. And the first is that refugees are legal. A, a lot of people, and this is why it's so important to define terms, a lot of people will lump everybody into illegal immigration, and it's just not the case. Refugees are, are legal. When it comes to refugees, and this is a quote, when it comes to refugees resettled, the question of legality is not complicated. Refugees are selected by the U.S. State Department and admitted by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security under the authority of the Refugee Act of 1980. Therefore, under the law, they have full legal status from the day they arrive with authorization to work and the right to move elsewhere within the country should they choose to just like any U.S. citizen. So while it is true that we as a country do have a problem with illegal immigration, refugees are not a part of that problem. It's really a separate question altogether. Uh, the second problem with, with this objection is I think it blurs the line between morality and legality. It blurs that line. Remember, not every law is moral, and not every moral act is legal. As Christians, we are called to submit to the rule of law. And Paul was writing in the Roman Empire. Now, what choice really did you have? Now, we as Americans are different. And I'm not going to go too far in this because we really talked about this in the gospel and politics. But we as Americans have this wonderful privilege of living in a democracy where we have a voice. And so while we submit to rule of law, so long as it doesn't require us to do things that are unethical, we are also called to work to change laws that are immoral, if they are immoral, in fact. And that could be relating to immigration or sanctity of life, you name it. That's our obligation. If we have the privilege of voting, we need to use it. The third common objection is other religions. Can't we just take Christian refugees? We are a Christian nation, or so it's claimed by certain people. Can't we just take Christian refugees? I think there are a couple problems with this objection. Uh, the first is it assumes that most of our refugees are non-Christians, and that's actually not true. Uh, based upon the information we get from the media and debating political parties, we might reasonably assume that all refugees are from the Middle East and they're men uh, in you know, the 30s and 40s. Now, it's actually true that there has been an increase in immigration and refugees from Middle Eastern countries. That, uh, we're talking about Syria, right? We're talking about uh, what's happening in Iran. There are lots of uh, problematic places in the Middle East. Um, yet, surprisingly, from all the countries, more Christians were resettled as refugees in the U.S. than any other world religion in the last decade. 
more Christians. Because here's the thing. Christians are persecuted. Christians flee famine. Christians flee war. Christians have actually accounted for 74% of refugees admitted so far in 2019. 74% are Christians. So when we think about that dwindling cap, we're actually, we should be thinking about saying no to our Christian brothers and sisters. That's what that means. Um, the second th- problem, I think, with this perspective is it caricatures Muslims. Now, I don't know about you, but y- you've probably heard uh, TV personalities and, and media um, hosts caricature our Christian beliefs. They give a false idea of what we believe and how we act. Uh, they stereotype us, and we don't like it. We want for ourselves to say what our faith is about and how we understand it and how we live it out. We don't want someone on TV speaking for us. I think it's actually crucial for our own integrity to give other religions the same courtesy that we want for ourselves, and that is the opportunity to describe our faith with our own words. This leads to the the third problem, I think, with this objection, and that is it undermines religious liberty. Here's what I mean. One of the most important aspects of our nation is this freedom of religion. I mean, it it really is the reason we are a nation. The colonies were about freedom of religion, freedom for the church from the power of the state. Think about all these British coming from uh, monarchical rule and being persecuted for their unique religious beliefs. They came here to be free of it. And here's the thing. If we as Christians don't defend the religious liberty of others, in addition to being hypocritical, we risk our own freedom. Um, Hear what the authors write. They say, once we cede to the government or to the opinion of the majority, whether or not a particular faith and its teaching should be allowed, it is possible, perhaps likely, that the views of biblical Christians could eventually be ruled unacceptable as well. Hateful. Bigoted. Pastor and theologian Ed Stetzer has said, religious freedom for some is not religious freedom for long. It just depends on who's in power. It just depends on who's in the majority. So what that means is that it's actually in our best interest as Christians, but more importantly, in the best interest for our neighbors, that we defend religious liberty for all people including Muslims. The fourth objection is this. It's terrorism. They want to kill us. Why would we let them in when they want to kill us? Think of um, the Islamic extremists who carried out the September 11th attacks, or the attacks in Brussels, or the attacks in San Bernardino, and so on and so forth. We're saturated with all of these acts of terrorism. And we don't want people like that coming into this country. And I think that is 100% reasonable. We, We shouldn't want those kinds of people coming into our country, coming into our homes. We don't, we don't want that violence here, right? I think that's 100% legitimate. Uh, The reason I think that this objection is a problem, um, is, is twofold. And the first is, none of the perpetrators in the attacks that we're seeing were refugees. None of them. And there's a reason for that. All of the perpetrators of terrorism attacks that we're thinking of, if they happened here on our soil, they happened from people that either entered on visas, which is pretty easy to get, um, or other legal means, not refugee resettlement. Listen to what the authors say. They say the vetting process for refugees is much more strenuous than that to which any other category of immigrant or visitor to the United States is subjected. It's the most strict. It would not be logical for a would-be terrorist to try to enter the United States as one of approximately 85,000 refugees admitted annually, this was written in 2015, rather than as one of the nearly 70 million visitors who come into the country each year and are subjected to a much less thorough screening process. In part two, we're actually going to talk about um, how strenuous this refugee resettlement process is and therefore why it takes so long. 
Um, but a, a terrorist would not take the time. They would lose lots of time, number one, but they also would risk being found out in a way that the obvious channels might miss. Uh, the second problem, I think, with this objection is it's actually imperiling the lives of hundreds of thousands of people based upon, upon unfounded fears about our own safety. Many people worry a terrorist could infiltrate the U.S. refugee resettlement program, and that is in the realm of possibility. It wouldn't make any sense, and it's highly unlikely, and it hasn't happened before. However, um, and this is an important thing for us to understand, 70% of terrorist attacks in the United States since 9-11 have been perpetrated by U.S. citizens. 70% U.S. citizens. Most of them born here. And many of them converts to Islam from Christianity. None of them have been refugees. And only 30% of the, the perpetrators of United States terrorist attacks uh, were not citizens already. What's more, since 9-11, more than 200,000 American citizens have been murdered in the United States. That doesn't include accidents and suicides. 200,000 murders since 9-11. Only 60 Americans since 9-11 have been killed by terrorism, by jihadis, by Islamic jihadis. Let me say that. So Islamic terrorism, 60. So the reason I think this is an issue is we're talking about the lives of hundreds of thousands of people who are literally on death's door. I've seen a refugee camp now. I, I hadn't before my trip to Rwanda. They're literally on death's door. And I think our fears are unfounded. I wanted to leave some time for questions and answers, but I've already gone over time. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you have a question that's burning and, and can't wait till next week, I ask you to please write to me. I'm going to, um, I won't communicate necessarily who, who asked it, but I will communicate um, how I would respond by email to those of you that, like, that would like to read, okay? Um, I want to close this, though, and here's how I want to close it. I still think it's really important for us as Christians and as Americans to be honest about our fears and our objections to refugee resettlement or any other objections we might have to immigration, uh, specifically illegal immigration, or even the asylum seekers uh, knocking on our southern door. We need to be able to voice those things. And we should be asking the government to be wise in the way it processes those people. We don't want them to be stupid, right? No, I don't think anybody would say that. Um, but I think as Christians, it's very important that we resist fear. One of the most, I think, debilitating things about being American is our emphasis on fear. Probably more than anyone else in the whole world, we are afraid, and yet we have probably less to be afraid of than most people in the world. I think there's something to that. Um, one of the most common commands in the Bible is do not fear. Do not fear. It's a good word for us. Because if we're driven by fear, what we tend to do is make safety an idol. We may pursue safety as the chief gospel value. God wants me to be safe. Yeah, I think that is a gospel value. But is it the chief? I don't think so. Persecution? Where, where, where does that fit in? To safety. Martyrdom? Where does that fit into safety? It, it's not at the top of the list. It can't become an idol for us as Christians. The authors say this. They say, even if welcoming refugees were genuinely unsafe, even if it were, God's command would still apply. Do not be afraid. Not because there's nothing to fear, but because God says, I am with you. I am with you. Because God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. God is that for us. So if God calls us to welcome refugees, and next week we'll talk about whether or not he actually does, then we don't do so because we trust the government or its processes or anything else, but because we trust in God and we're Christians first. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you and we want to grow in our love of you.
help us also to grow in our love of neighbor. This is such a complicated issue, and there are so many legitimate fears, concerns, and perspectives. Help us to be gracious with those who disagree. And Lord, as your followers, help us to have your mind. Give us the mind of Christ. And not just ourselves individually, but may we corporately have the mind of Christ. May we live and move and have our being in you and with our brothers and sisters together. Bless those who have come tonight, Lord, as they go to their homes. I pray that you would encourage them in their spirits, dwelling on the fact that you are our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in the troubles that we ourselves face. Help us, Lord, also to preach that gospel to others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.